If you have your Bibles with you, um, you can turn to Romans chapter 1. One of the more important tasks that theologians do is to bring the doctrines of the Bible together in a systematic way organizing uh, biblical doctrine by subject and doing this is one area of theology called systematic theology and anybody that's gone to seminary or any of those kind of places they you have to study systematic theology which is I don't, I don't mean have to in a bad way it's it's actually wonderful but uh, it's, it's a required thing because bringing a systematization or a, a comprehensive understanding of the Bible in different subject areas is a very helpful um, discipline. Usually systematic theologies break down doctrine into anywhere from seven to ten, sometimes more major categories, depending on the guy doing the breaking down, that they, uh, subject areas that they plug all the scriptures into to, to formulate doctrine based on the total content of scripture. And these categories often have funny sounding names to uh, most of us because they're based on Greek words. And systematic theology, some of the big categories would include, um, the only thing that's really in English would be the first thing that they call theology proper. And theology, of course, theos is the word for God, so that's the study of God himself. What is he like? What are his attributes? Christology would be the study of? Guys already are Greek scholars, that's really good. Yeah, Christ, right? Uh, his divine and human nature, his person, his work, those kind of things. Pneumatology is the study of the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. We get pneumatic from it. It's the word for wind or air power. It's also the word for spirit. Um, ecclesiology is the study of the church and the doctrines of the church, how churches are organized and structured and all of that, because ecclesia is a Greek word. Soteriology is the study of salvation. Soterios is the Greek word for salvation in the Bible, how we are saved, all of that. One area of systematic theology has a name that is in common with modern education. Because if you go to college today, most, most of you would not, unless you go to a Christian school, you would not study ecclesiology or soteriology or those kinds of issues. But there is one area of study which systematic theology and modern education have in common. Uh, that's because there's one area that modern people are still concerned with, and that, not surprisingly, is we ourselves, all right? Uh, humanity. And that same term is used in theology and in secular academia, and that's the term anthropology, right? Anthropos is a Greek word for man. So like the other subjects area names, anthropology comes right out of um, a biblical theology. Anthropology used to be a theological word almost exclusively. Now it, of course, is a branch of, well, I'll call it science in the, in the loose sense. Uh, it's not hard science, it's social science or whatever. But in systematic theology, anthropology is the study of man, his nature, his condition, his origin, his relationship to God, his relationship to the world. Anthropology is a fascinating area of theology, of course, because it's all about us. And while so much of theology deals with matters we can't actually see or touch, and a lot of it rests with understanding and faith that's really internal, anthropology speaks to our very nature and existence as we live it every single day. Most of what the Bible says about man can be verified by our own experience and our own awareness. So it's quite interesting. And do you, as I think I've shared before with you all, the, the Bible's understanding of man is so insightful 
And it's so clear, and it's so different from both modern science and from other religions, that biblical anthropology is one of the reasons that I became a Christian in the first place. I mean, the main reason is Christ. But the other big truth area that compelled me was biblical anthropology, because the Bible describes us like we really are. It tells us like it is, not what we want to hear. It tells me why I am the way I am. And I could never find any other uh, psychology, philosophy, science, or religion which told me the truth about myself as I know me. But the Bible does. No one else, in fact, even comes close to describing me. So why all this about anthropology? Who cares? Well, because the text today in Romans begins one of the most significant portions dealing with anthropology in the whole Bible. There are a number of sections that are important, but this is one of the most important. Romans 1.18, all the way through chapter 3, basically to verse 20, contains an enormous wealth of information about man, why he is the way he is, why he does the things he does. So this morning, we are just going to open the door on this subject area by looking at six verses in chapter 1, and we'll continue to explore that and those key issues about man over these next few weeks. So we'll be answering some of the big questions over the next weeks that people often ask. Uh, what about people who've never heard the gospel? You know, What about the innocent native in some remote island somewhere that never had a, had a chance? What does God think of other religions? Uh, um, what is truth? as Pontius Pilate asked. What is human nature like? Are we good? Are we bad? Are we neutral? Um, all of those kinds of issues, very important issues. So let's start with some kind of context before we jump into verse 18. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, those two verses we looked at in some depth last week. Paul is talking about the power of the gospel. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is powerful. For what? He says, for salvation. It is able to save us. It is able to rescue us. How does it do that? It provides righteousness. Verse 17 says that in the gospel, God's righteousness is revealed. And that will be a very important word as we get to chapter 3, especially in chapter 3 and chapter 5 and chapter 8 of Romans. I mean, righteousness is the issue. But for now, let's just say that man needs salvation because he has a righteousness problem. We are deficient in righteousness. We have a righteousness deficit. That's bad news for, as verse 17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. The one that's righteous or right with God will live by faith. Well, how do we get this righteousness? Do you have a righteousness deficit? I do. So how do we fill that up? How can I even start talking about living and faith when there's this huge deficit and the problem is, not only am I behind in my righteousness, but every day I get a little farther behind, if you're talking about personal righteousness. I never have days where I actually catch up. Do you? Because if you were perfect every day, all you would do is keep up where you are. And every failure is a step further back. 
So that's the problem. It's like, just put it in a money situation. If every day you had less and less money, or let's say you're in debt, and every day it only gets more debt, you never catch up. Some days, if you're either not paying attention to yourself or really good, if you're talking about righteousness, you might be able to pay whatever, whatever it is you're supposed to owe for that day, but if you slip it all, you're further in debt, and then further in debt, and further in debt, further in debt. Continuously. That's what human life is like. Just based on reality. And look at your own life and you'll know that it's true. Well, the good news, the gospel, is that God provides righteousness which grants us life. And that righteousness is received through faith. When we put faith in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is put in our account. That's the gospel. That's very good news. So there's bad news, but there's good news. Really good news. And we need it desperately, this righteousness, because of, as things stand, if we do not have the righteousness of God, we have no salvation, no rescue, no deliverance from that debt. Now, we describe salvation as a rescue. What are we being rescued from? Verse 18, here's where it comes in. We're being rescued from the wrath of God, the terrible, consuming anger of the living God to whom we are all accountable. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Notice that word revealed. That's a really important word. It's the same word used in verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed. So listen, just real basic level here, God is revealing information that you and I and this whole world really needs. He's explaining the real deal. He's explaining what really is happening. There are all sorts of words in this passage, these six verses, 18 through 23, related to knowledge and understanding in these verses here. Verse 18, revealed. Verse 19, known. Or, and then evident. Verse 20, he talks about clearly seeing and understanding. They're all unique and different terms. But we're talking about things that either all people know or all people should know or that God is revealing to everyone. We're talking about knowledge. And that is a subject of great interest. What makes a person a believer or an unbeliever? A pagan, a Christian, an atheist, an agnostic. What makes them like that? Is it just chance? What is religion? Why are people religious? Why does every culture in the world have a religion? What's going on? Why are a billion people in church today? And why are other people calling the television when they see that weird lady come on with the tarot cards? I mean, why are all those things and things like that happening? Well, the world has all sorts of ideas about where religious faith comes from. And not surprisingly, the world's ideas tend to make modern, educated, scientific people look like the ones who are really in the know because we love to pat ourselves on the back. And religious people are holding on to some primitive, sort of superstitious nonsense that was it's not really needed any longer, that was a part of our evolution into rational consciousness, but now we're above that except for the few regressives that still need a crutch to cling on to. 
And it usually sounds something like this. Let me quote the words of um, Sigmund Freud, one of the core founders of modern thought. Marx, Darwin, and Freud, the creators of the 20th century. Here's Freud. There are elements which seem to mock at all human control. The earth which quakes and is torn apart and buries all human life and its works. Water which deluges and drowns everything in turmoil. Storms which blow everything before them. There are diseases which we have only recently recognized as attacks by other organisms. And finally there is the painful riddle of death against which no medicine has yet been found or probably will be. With these forces, nature rises up against us, majestic, cruel, and inexorable. She brings to our mind once more our weakness and helplessness, which we thought to escape through the work of civilization. And where he's going with all of this, Freud is saying that, and this is the widely accepted view, if anybody of you have taken a class in secular anthropology, you probably heard this, is that in order to deal with the terrors of nature and storms and strange things, that primitive people began to give personality to these forces that could be dealt with. In other words, well, how do you argue with a storm, right? Well, you can't. So, give the storm a personality. It's the thunder god. It's Thor. It's a guy up there with a big hammer, beating on clouds or something, hammering out lightning bolts and throwing them at people. He's a guy at least we can talk to. That's the theory. R.C. Sproul, um, this is not what he believes, but he's explaining this modern understanding, and this is the way he explains it. Very well put, so I'm just going to read it for you. Religion begins by attributing human characteristics and personality to impersonal forces, such as earthquakes and storms. If a human being is angry with me and threatens to harm me, I can do several things to dissuade him. I can plead for mercy. I can flatter and praise him to try to get him to like me. I can offer to provide services for him if he treats me kindly. I can try to bribe him. There are a host of ways to deal with human anger. We understand personal anger because we deal with it every day. But how do you negotiate with a hurricane? You can't bribe it or plead with it or um, plead with it to go away. It has no checking account and no ears to hear your pleas for mercy. Freud answers that, a, that man deals with the impersonal forces of nature by personalizing them through religion. You invent a spirit that lives in the storm or the flood. If the spirits are personal, then all the forces of personal persuasion can be brought to bear on them. From a simple form of animistic spirit powers inhabiting nature, man develops a more sophisticated religion of monotheism. That's one God. In the monotheism, all the pleading, bargaining, praise, and service can be focused on one personal deity who has control of all nature. The ultimate crutch, then, becomes a personal God, a combination of kindly grandfather, cosmic bellhop, and celestial bodyguard. By religion, nature is made sacred and personal so that its threatening power is brought under control. That is the way the world understands religion, right? That's the modern view. It's entirely naturalistic and it's entirely self-exalting because we are gods ourselves now. We are beyond such things. Monotheism, a belief in one god, was a step up, they would say, but just a step and we're way beyond that now and so we can puff out our chests and talk about how much we really know and where we're going through science and all of that. There's no reason to personalize nature and God personalizes nature and we don't need him anymore. Only the weak or the unsophisticated or the frightened need God, the crutch. Now, there's a really big problem with that theory. A huge problem. And I'm going to get to that in a little while. At least I'm going to touch on it. Here's what the Bible says, though. Verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who suppressed the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. It's exactly the opposite of the modern explanation but looking at similar data. Where do people that throw girls in volcanoes and offer uh, fruit to the gods of nature or whatever, where do those people get that? Well, it's early man arising and fearing nature and ascribing personality to it. Well, you you could understand it that way. The Bible says it's people that know the true God, that suppress the knowledge of the true God because of their own personal wickedness, who deny him and substitute in his place gods of their own invention. People do worship nature. And they do seek to placate spirits or the great spirit. But the Bible says that is man's degeneration, his fallenness, his devolution, his moving away. It's what man has sunk to, not where he has risen from. Very important difference. And by the Bible's reckoning, modern man and all of his arrogance and sophistication is carrying on this same devolution. He is a fool. Professing to be wise, he is a fool because he suppresses the truth he absolutely knows. Let's look at verse 18 once again. Here's why this is happening. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's a psychological word, suppression. Stifle, stuff, stick down, cram away out of your consciousness. Remember Archie Bunker used to say, stifle it, Edith. That's exactly what it is. You're stifling truth. We don't want to deal with it. We will not deal with it on a conscious level. We will suppress it. Two things it says here about humanity. We are ungodly and we are unrighteous. Ungodly means not living to God's glory. It means not giving God his due. This is a sin against God's person and it's a very great sin. It is thinking and choosing and living and acting as though he is not the most important person in the universe. That we are. That's what it is. That's ungodliness. Unrighteousness speaks of sins against the will of God, a violation of his moral order. It's a breaking of divine laws. Now, these two things so accurately describe man. They are so true that most people never even think about it. It's so common to live this way, to be ungodly and unrighteous. It's so common that we don't even think about it. To be concerned with godliness and righteousness makes you an absolute oddball. Isn't that true? Not only electricians, Dave. It makes you a weirdo anywhere. There's there's a reason they use words like freak 
to attach to people that just think that maybe God really is the most important person in the world. You're a freak if you believe that. See? But ungodliness and unrighteousness bring down upon humanity the wrath of God. His anger in judgment. As Paul will explain later in Romans, the wages of sin is death. We'll be getting there years from now, probably. It's really not okay. It's not okay to disrespect and disregard and thumb one's nose at the God of the universe, even though we do it all the time. That's not okay. Let me put this in the simplest terms I can put it in. Terms anybody can understand. You might want to write this down because this is... I'm going to give you a three-word sentence. Jot it down and remember it because it's real important later. Here it comes. God is God. Got it. Write that down. God is God. And he deserves, by virtue of who he is, to be absolutely, unequivocally first in honor, first in love, first in devotion, first in your decision-making, first in every capacity that you have because every fiber of your essence and being, physical, spiritual, mental, and everything else is a gift of His and is utterly dependent on Him. Utterly. There's a one move you can make that isn't dependent on Him. So God is God and you are not. God should be accepted and joyfully received as the head of all his creation without question. It all belongs to him and everything, everything depends on him. The air the atheist breathes is a gift of God. His lungs won't function without God's blessing. And he hates that. Won't deal with it. Suppresses it. Can't handle it. Every affection that he has, every joy in life is a gift of God. Every sunset he enjoys, every attractive woman he sees, God made that. And he hates to even think of it in those terms, but that's exactly the situation. Every warm feeling he gets from hugging his own child is a gift of God. Because God should be first in all things. Everything is a manifestation of his wisdom and his glory. Now, if you believe that God is God, if you can affirm that sentence and, and mean it by what I mean by it, that God should be first in all things, if you believe that, you are way beyond most people in your search for God. It means you're either a Christian or you're really close. If you believe that God is God. You're right at the doorstep of truth because that is the key. God is first. God is God. But he is not so regarded by human beings. No one in this room, no one that you know, no one comes even close to regarding God as he deserves and living in a way that's appropriate to who he is. Humanity is steeped in ungodliness and unrighteousness. Up to the eyeballs, if not over the head. Doesn't matter what culture you're from, doesn't matter what language you speak, what schooling you've had, what your parents were like. Everyone, everywhere, gives God much less than he is due. 
And that is cancer in the universe. It is a spreading corruption, a pollution in a perfect universe that God made. A revulsion to goodness that is almost beyond comprehension that we could be that way. And this condition of ungodliness and unrighteousness rightly and with perfect justice calls down the wrath of God. How could it not if he is good? Now here's what ungodly and unrighteous people say about all this. Well, we're doing our best. That's not really fair. What do you want? Call us some slack. We don't know any better. You know, you can all be picky about some of this righteousness stuff. There's not enough proof. We need to see more of this or that. We need more to go on. Not so. It is not so. You have all you need. What you have done, if you say those things, is suppressed the truth because you delight in unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident, manifest. It's just there. Within them, for God made it evident to them. Every human being on the planet has an innate, self-evident awareness of God. Not just some deity, but the true God in their heart. God has made it evident or manifest within. It's simply there. And here's the big secret, folks. There are no atheists in the world anywhere. None. There are people that profess to be. But if you cut open an atheist's soul, you won't find unbelief. You find hatred. You find hatred for God and His holiness and His rules and the judgment to, go, to come. But you will also find knowledge. You'll find the knowledge that God really exists. And they know it. And I'm not picking on atheists because religious people are just as hateful towards the real God they just suppress it with religion instead of with atheism. I rarely, if ever, try to argue with somebody that God exists because they already know it. Why should I be arguing the point they already know? I don't feel obligated to do that, nor does the Bible. You never see one argument in the Bible to prove that God exists. You don't have to prove something everybody knows. There is within man the knowledge of the true God, and this is confirmed by God's created world as well. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen. The things that are invisible about God are clearly seen in nature, being understood through what has been made. So God is knowable in nature, knowable enough to make us accountable. And from nature's perfect balance to its incredible diversity from the immensity of it, of the heavens and all the glories of that, to the fantastic amounts of information encoded on a single cell in your body that if you pulled that, that information out, it would stretch to the sun and back a hundred times. All of that put in every single cell of your body. And just the fantastic amounts of uh, creativity and ingeniousness in the creation. That all speaks of a creator. And more importantly, and here's, now we're getting somewhere. We have human beings 
We have human beings. Anybody that's contemplating this world is a human being because nobody else contemplates the world. Dogs just run around in it. They don't contemplate it. Why are we here? Oh, 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 oh. You know, they don't do that. <laughs> Ducks don't contemplate their meaning of the meaning of life. They don't. They just quack and fly. Earlier I said there was a big problem in reasoning, the reasoning that God is simply a personalized version of nature. Remember what Freud was saying? I said there's a big problem with that. The problem is man. The problem is the very person that says that. The problem is humankind. The Bible says that from the very beginning, man was made in the image of God. And as much as we may desire to suppress the truth of that, we're stuck. We're absolutely stuck with it. We have corrupted that image. We have marred that image. We have dragged it through the muck. We have misused it. But there it stands and it's with us every day. You wake up in the image of God. Sorry. And it screams to you that you're a person and so there has to be a personal foundation to reality. Because persons don't come from non-persons. And I love to watch these evolution shows on TV where they try to explain human personality on strictly mechanistic terms, like instinctive terms, and it never works. You just sit there and go, well, that's not right. I'm more than that. We reason and we wonder and we ask questions. You know, they've taught animals to talk, you know, certain amounts of language. They've given, like, gorillas and stuff they get up to like 600, 800 vocabulary words. That's pretty significant. You know what they never do, ever? You can't teach an animal to do? You can get them to say, bring food or funny tiger or something like that. But you know what you can't get them to do? You, they will not ask a question. You can't get a gorilla to ask you a question. You can't. You know why? They have no soul. They're not made in God's image. I mean, they have life, animal soul life. But they don't have, they're not made in God's image. They're not persons. They cannot reason abstractly, they cannot wonder, and they don't ask questions. Where's Cynthia? They don't ask those kind of questions. <laughs> we see things as beautiful and ugly, aesthetic values. They don't. Birds sing, but we write songs. They just sing what their mother sang or whatever the rule is for their being. We create. We believe passionately in right and wrong. Even if we've twisted it to mean that I'm right and you're wrong, we still believe it. And animals don't. Nothing else does. We're not plants. We're not animals. We're not machines. We tower over those things because we're made in God's image. The capacity to reason. Aesthetic values. Beauty and ugliness and creativity. Morality. Right and wrong. Even Hitler believed in right and wrong. Don't break my army. I want to break your army. It's wrong for you to break my army. Everybody believes that. And we pray. Everyone looks for something or someone beyond himself. Everyone. And if atheists were honest, they would tell you that when the crunch time comes, they turn up and plead for something. Everyone seeks to transcend this world to find a greater purpose. Everyone. Reason, aesthetics, morality, spirituality. We are trapped. 
We are trapped by the reality of our being persons made in the image of a person. So God's power and nature are clearly seen. He's infinitely powerful, creative, magnificent. You can see that from, from nature. And he's a person. You can see that by looking at yourself. God is not in any way playing hide and seek with us. He's not hiding in some weird, mysterious place. He's left fingerprints all over the place and handprints and footprints. He's even written things down. Not just in the Bible, but in your heart. In fact, your very makeup is a code. It's written information. God is known significantly through what has been made so much that, verse 20 says, they are without what? Excuse. You can't go stand before God and just Well, you know, I, I never saw you, so I didn't really know. If you would have told me you were there, I would... Nobody's going to say that. Because they all know. Everyone knows. Without excuse. Anapologetes. That's a Greek word. Ana means without. Apology. Without apology. That's what it means. There's no defense. No defense. There's no excuse for failing to honor God as he deserves. No excuse. It is sheer wickedness that stops and stifles and suppresses that awareness. Sheer wickedness. Verse 21 and 22 explain exactly why and how we are in the condition we are in. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. They knew, but they refused. They refused to render honor. And they were not thankful. And it has remained that way to this day. That's humanity's willful choice. As Frank Sinatra would say it, I'll do it my way. And just as surely as we are made in God's image in Genesis 1, as it tells us there, so too it's just as true that we choose against him and his rule. That happened in actual history in Genesis chapter 3, and it's still going on today. It's so true. And it's so obvious. And we affirm our first parents' choice to rebel over and over and over again. And even though the world was cursed because of them and death and disease and disaster have entered into our existence as a, not only a punishment, but as a wake-up that things aren't right, we blame God, don't we? God gets blamed for that, for all the bad. And rarely gets thanked for all the bounteous goodness. We refuse to honor God through our very existence it's totally dependent on him every moment, and we blame him. Open our eyes. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. An exchange takes place. We've traded deities. That's part of the suppression. You know, in psychological terms, if you want to get into that, when something horrible happens, sometimes people forget. It's suppressed knowledge. That's what they call it. It's, it's put somewhere else. Like, like that guy that got clunked in the head down in L.A. that one time and he woke up in the hospital and says, I just remember driving my truck. I don't remember getting clunked in the head. Well, that's suppressed 
knowledge. I mean, obviously his brain got banged around too, but people are actually literally forget sometimes when things happen to them. It's something they don't want to deal with or can't deal with or they're not ready to deal with in their conscious mind. That's a, that's a gift, actually, I think, in our nature that allows us to cope. The psychological terror of knowing that you are constantly getting more and more behind in righteousness and that God is just and that you are not and that his wrath hangs over your head is something people don't want to deal with. They want a God that can be placated by our actions. They want a God that can be dealt with. So they're taking an infinitely pure God and bringing him down. That's the substitution. We'll make him like us. We'll call him Zeus or, or whatever. Well, the volcano god. We'll throw him a girl. See how he likes that. You know, whatever those things are. Somebody we can communicate. Yeah, it's the same idea, except it's not going from animalism to religion. It's driving out and suppressing the knowledge of the true God with manageable stuff that we make up. It's an exchange. So we turn away from the God we hate and we hate him because he's just and we're not. And he makes demands that we don't want to obey. And we know we're going to face him. But we smash that knowledge down. But we can't get rid of our humanness. We're still spiritual beings. So we invent. We create. We put things in his place. Anything, everything but the truth. You know, I have to say at this point, is it not a wonder to you, hearing all of this, that God loves you? <laughs> is it not a wonder? That just fills my heart. Are you not stung to an awareness of His mercy? I mean, don't forget, with all we've done, the gospel of God, verse 16, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He actually wants to rescue us out of all of this muck and all of this madness and all of this foolishness and bring us back to himself in perfect harmony. Who could say no? People that don't want to have him. God has this great desire in his own person to rescue us from ourselves, from that descent that our humanity is on, from that foolishness, from our sin. So his arms are extended out and welcoming, even pleading, be reconciled to me, he says, in Christ. And the only thing that holds us back is our own stubborn pride and willful rebellion. And all we have to really do is embrace the simplest proposition in the world that God is God. Don't refuse him what he is due. Lay it all down. Lay your weapons down. Put them down. Surrender. It's time to surrender. He wins. He's going to win anyway. Why hold out to the end? The whole rebellion thing, you know, if I could talk to Adam and Eve, I'd just like to tell him, the whole rebellion thing didn't work from the get-go. It's been trouble for a long time now. It's time to surrender. And the great thing is, He's welcoming us back home if we want to come. That's what he's saying. We'll pick up this theme uh, of man's decline and his devolution next week, but I want to close with a word from 
2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's one of my favorite bits of the New Testament. Just listen, verse 14. Paul says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, he says, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let's pray. Lord, we're just humbled by the truth. It's hard to run away when you tell us to our face. And yet we may be driven to do that. I don't know. Maybe we feel like stifling. But I pray you'd give us the grace to just accept what you say and affirm it, that you are God and we are not. That you deserve everything. And we nothing. And how out of whack we are. How lopsided our understanding of the world. How twisted our view of our own lives. To think that you're anything less than everything. And yet you welcome us back. You call us. You invite us. And give us the grace and the faith to stand and to walk towards you. And I pray, God, that this morning we would do that 100% in our hearts. And give you, in some way, Father, what we're capable of, what you deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.